Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, we begin The Book of King Arthur by Howard Pyle, the same author who brought us The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. We begin with The Winning of a Sword, Chapter 1. And now, our story. Chapter 1. How there came a certain wounded knight unto the court of King Arthur, how a young knight of the king's court sought to avenge him, and failed, and how the king thereupon took that assay upon himself. Now it fell upon a certain pleasant time in the springtide season, that King Arthur and his court were making a royal progression through that part of Britain which lieth close to the forests of the Usk. At that time the weather was exceedingly warm, and so the king and court made pause within the forest under the trees, in the cool and pleasant shade that the place afforded. And there the king rested for a while upon a couch of rushes spread with scarlet cloth. And the knights then present at that court were Sir Gawain, and Sir Ewain, and Sir Kay, and Sir Pelias, and Sir Belvedere, and Sir Caradoc, and Sir Geraint, and Sir Bodwin of Britain, and Sir Constantine of Cornwall, and Sir Brandiles, and Sir Mador de la Porte. And there was not to be found anywhere in the world a company of such noble and exalted knights as these. Now as the king lay drowsing, and as these worthies sat holding cheerful converse together at that place, there came, of a sudden, a considerable bustle and stir upon the outskirts of the court, and presently there appeared a very sad and woeful sight. For there came thitherward a knight, sore wounded, and upheld upon his horse by a golden-haired page, clad in an apparel of white and azure. And, likewise, the knight's apparel and the trappings of his horse were of white and azure, and upon his shield he bore the emblazonment of a single lily-flower of silver upon a ground of pure azure. But the knight was in a very woeful plight, for his face was as pale as wax and hung down upon his breast, and his eyes were glazed and saw a knot that passed around him, and his fair apparel of white and blue was all red with the blood of life that ran from a great wound in his side. And, as they came upon their way, the young page lamented in such wise that it wrung the heart for to hear him. Now, as these approached, King Arthur, aroused, cried out, Alas, what doleful spectacle is that which I behold! Now hasten, ye my lords, and bring succour to yonder knight, and do thou, Sir Kay, go quickly, and bring that fair young page hither, that we may presently hear from his lips what mishap hath befallen his lord. So certain of those knights hastened at the king's bidding, and gave all succour to the wounded knight, and conveyed him to King Arthur's own pavilion, which had been pitched at a little distance. And when he had come there, the king's chirurgeon presently attended upon him, albeit his wounds were of such sort he might not hope to live for a very long while. Meantime, Sir Kay brought that fair young page before the king, where he sat, and the king thought that he had hardly ever seen a more beautiful countenance. And the king said, I prithee, tell me, Sir Page, who is thy master, and how came he in such a sad and pitiable condition as that which we have just now beheld? That will I so, Lord, said the youth. Know that my master is entitled Sir Miles of the White Fountain." and that he cometh from the country north of where we are, and at a considerable distance from this. In that country he is the lord of seven castles and several noble estates, wherefore, as thou mayest see, he is of considerable consequence. A fortnight ago, being doubtless moved thereunto by the lustiness of the springtime, he set forth with only me for his esquire, for he had a mind to seek adventure in such manner as beseemed a good knight who would be errant. And we had several adventures, and in all of them my lord was entirely successful, for he overcame six knights at various places, for to attest his valor unto his lady. At last this morning, coming to a certain place, situated at a considerable distance from this, we came upon a fair castle of the forest, which stood in a valley surrounded by open spaces of level lawn, bedight with many flowers of diverse sorts. There we beheld three fair damsels who tossed a golden ball from one to the other, and the damsels were clad all in flame-colored satin, and their hair was of the color of gold. As we drew nigh to them, they stinted their play, and she who was the chief of those damsels called out to my lord, demanding of him whither he went, and what was his errand. To her my lord made answer that he was errant and in search of adventure, and upon this the three damsels laughed, and she who had first spoken said, 
"'and thou art in search of adventure, Sir Knight. "'Happily I may be able to help thee "'to one that shall satisfy thee to thy heart's content.' "'Unto this my master made reply, "'I prithee, fair damsel, "'tell me what that adventure may be, "'so that I may presently essay it.' "'Thereupon this lady bade my master "'to take a certain path, "'and to follow the same for the distance of a league "'or a little more, "'and that he would then come to a bridge of stone "'that crossed a violent stream, "'and she assured him, "'that there he might find adventure enough "'for to satisfy any man. "'So my master and I wended thitherward, "'as that damoiselle had directed, "'and, by and by, we came unto the bridge "'whereof she had spoken. "'And, lo, beyond the bridge was a lonesome castle "'with a tall straight tower, "'and before the castle was a wide and level lawn "'of well-trimmed grass. "'And immediately beyond the bridge "'was an apple-tree hung over with a multitude of shields.' and midway upon the bridge was a single shield, entirely of black, and beside it hung a hammer of brass, and beneath the shield was written these words in letters of red, Who smiteth this shield, doeth so at his peril. Now my master, Sir Miles, when he read those words, went straightway to that shield, and, seizing the hammer that hung beside it, he smote upon it a blow so strong that it rang like thunder. Thereupon, as in answer, the portcullis of the castle was let fall, and there immediately came forth a knight, clad all from head to foot in sable armor. And his apparel, and the trappings of his horse, and all the appointments thereof, were likewise entirely of sable. Now when that sable knight perceived my master, he came riding swiftly across the meadow, and so to the other end of the bridge. And when he had come there, he drew rein, and saluted my master, and cried out, Sir Knight! I demand of thee, why thou didst smite that shield. Now let me tell thee, because of thy boldness, I shall take away from thee thine own shield, and shall hang it upon yonder apple tree, where thou beholdest all those other shields to be hanging. Unto this my master made reply, That thou shalt not do unless thou mayst overcome me, as night to night. And thereupon immediately he dressed his shield, and put himself into array, for an assault at arms. So my master and this sable knight, having made themselves ready for that encounter, presently drave together with might and main, and they met in the middle of the course, where my master's spear burst into splinters. But the spear of the sable knight held, and it pierced through Sir Miles, his shield, and it penetrated his side, so that both he and his horse were overthrown violently into the dust, he being wounded so grievously that he could not arise again from the ground whereon he lay. Then the sable knight took my master's shield, and hung it up in the branches of the apple-tree where the other shields were hanging, and thereupon, without paying further heed to my master, or inquiring as to his hurt, he rode away into his castle again, whereof the portcullis was immediately closed behind him. So, after that he had gone, I got my master to his horse with great labor, and straightway took him thence, not knowing where I might find harborage for him, until I came to this place. And that, my lord king, is the true story of how my master came by that mortal hurt, which he hath suffered. Ha! By the glory of paradise, cried King Arthur. I do consider it a great shame that in my kingdom, and so near to my court, strangers should be so discourteously treated as Sir Miles hath been served. For it is certainly a discourtesy for to leave a fallen knight upon the ground, without tarrying to inquire as to his hurt how grievous it may be and still more discourteous it is for to take away the shield of a fallen knight who hath done good battle. And so did all the knights of the king's court exclaim against the discourtesy of that sable knight. Then there came forth a certain esquire attendant upon the king's person, by the name of Grifflet, who was much beloved by his royal master, and he kneeled before the king and cried out in a loud voice, I crave a boon of thee, my lord king, and do beseech thee that thou wilt grant it unto me. Then King Arthur uplifted his countenance upon the youth as he knelt before him, and he said, Ask, Grifflet, and thy boon shall be granted unto thee. Thereupon Grifflet said, It is this that I would ask. I crave that thou wilt make me straightway knight, and that thou wilt let me go forth and endeavor to punish this unkindly knight, by overthrowing him, and so redeeming those shields which he hath hung upon that apple tree. Then was King Arthur much troubled in his spirit, for Grifflet was as yet only an esquire, 
and altogether untried in arms. So he said, Behold, thou art yet too young to have to do with so potent a knight as this sable champion must be, who has thus overthrown so many knights without himself suffering any mishap. I prithee, dear Grifflet, consider, and ask some other boon. But young Grifflet only cried the more, A boon, and thou hast granted it unto me. Thereupon King Arthur said, Thou shalt have thy boon, though my heart much misgiveth me that thou wilt suffer great ill and misfortune from this adventure. So that night Grifflet kept watch upon his armor in a chapel of the forest, and in the morning, having received the sacrament, he was created a knight by the hand of King Arthur, and it was not possible for any knight to have greater honor than that. Then King Arthur fastened the golden spurs to Sir Grifflet's heels with his own hand. So Grifflet was made a knight, and having mounted his charger, he rode straightway upon his adventure, much rejoicing and singing for pure pleasure. And it was at this time that Sir Miles died of his hurt, for it is often so that death and misfortune befall some, whilst others laugh and sing for hope and joy, as though such grievous things as sorrow and death could never happen in the world wherein they live. Now that afternoon King Arthur sat waiting with great anxiety for word of that young knight, but there was no word until toward evening, when there came hurrying to him certain of his attendants, proclaiming that Sir Grifflet was returning, but without his shield, and in such guise that it seemed as though a great misfortune had befallen him. And straightway thereafter came Sir Grifflet himself, sustained upon his horse by the one hand by Sir Constantine, and upon the other by Sir Brandale's. And lo, Sir Grifflet's head hung down upon his breast, and his fair new armor was all broken and stained with blood and dust. And so woeful was he of appearance, that King Arthur's heart was contracted with sorrow to behold that young knight in so pitiable a condition. So, at King Arthur's bidding, they conducted Sir Grifflet to the royal pavilion, and there they laid him down upon a soft couch. Then the king's chirurgeon searched his wounds, and found that the head of a spear and a part of the shaft thereof were still piercing Sir Griflet's side, so that he was in most woeful and grievous pain. And when King Arthur beheld in what a perilous state Sir Griflet lay, he cried out, Alas, my dear young knight, what hath happened thee to bring thee into such a woeful condition as this which I behold? Then Sir Griflet, speaking in a very weak voice, told King Arthur how he had fared, and he said that he had proceeded through the forest until he had discovered the three beautiful damsels whereof the page of Sir Miles had spoken. And he said that these damsels had directed him as to the manner in which he should pursue his adventure. And he said that he had found the bridge whereon hung the shield and the brazen mall, and that he had there beheld the apple tree hung full of shields. And he said that he smote the shield of the sable knight with the brazen mall, and that the sable knight had thereupon come riding out against him. And he said that this knight did not appear of a mind to fight with him. Instead, he cried out to him, with a great deal of nobleness, that he was too young, and too untried in arms, to have to do with a seasoned knight. Wherefore he advised Sir Grifflet to withdraw him from that adventure, ere it was too late. But, notwithstanding this advice, Sir Grifflet would not withdraw, but declared that he would certainly have to do with that other knight in sable. Now at the very first onset, Sir Grifflet's spirit burst into pieces, but the spear of the sable knight had held, and it pierced through Sir Grifflet's shield and into his side, causing him this grievous wound whereof he suffered. And Sir Grifflet said that the sable knight had then, most courteously, uplifted him upon his horse again, albeit he had kept Sir Grifflet's shield, and had hung it upon the tree with those others that hung there, and had then directed him upon his way, so that he had made shift to ride thither, though with great pain and dole. Then was King Arthur very woed and greatly disturbed in his mind, for indeed he loved Sir Griflet exceedingly well. Wherefore he declared that he himself would now go forth for to punish that sable knight, and for to humble him with his own hand. And, though the knights of his court strove to dissuade him from that adventure, yet he declared that he with his own hand would accomplish that proud knight's humiliation, and that he would undertake the adventure, with God his grace, upon the very next day. And so disturbed was he, that he could scarce eat his food that evening for vexation. Nor would he go to his couch to sleep, but, 
having inquired very narrowly of Sir Grifflet where he might find that valley of flowers and those three damsels. He spent the night in walking up and down his pavilion, awaiting for the dawning of day. Now, as soon as the birds first began to chirp, and the east to brighten with the coming of the daylight, King Arthur summoned his two esquires, and having with their aid donned his armor and mounted a milk-white war-horse, he presently took his departure upon that adventure which he had determined upon. And, indeed, it is a very pleasant thing for to ride forth in the dawning of a springtime day. For then the little birds do sing their sweetest song, all joining in one joyous medley, whereof one may scarce tell one note from another, so multitudinous is that pretty rondelay. Then do the growing things of the earth smell the sweetest in the freshness of the early daytime, the fair flowers, the shrubs, and the blossoms upon the trees. Then doth the dew bespoggle all the sword as to an incredible multitude of jewels of various colors. Then is all the world sweet and clean and new, as though it had been fresh created for him who came to roam abroad so early in the morning. So King Arthur's heart expanded with great joy, and he chanted a quaint song as he rode through the forest upon the quest of that knightly adventure. So, about noontide, he came to that part of the forest lands whereof he had heard those several times before. For of a sudden he discovered before him a wide and gently sloping valley, a down which ran a stream as bright as silver. And lo, the valley was strewn all over with an infinite multitude of fair and fragrant flowers of diverse sorts. And in the midst of the valley there stood a comely castle with tall red roofs and many bright windows, so that it seemed to King Arthur that it was a very fine castle indeed. And upon a smooth green lawn he perceived those three damoiselles clad in flame-colored satin, of whom the page of Sir Miles and Sir Grifflet had spoken. And they played at ball with a golden ball, and the hair of each was the hue of gold. And it seemed to King Arthur, as he drew nigh, that they were the most beautiful damoiselles he had ever beheld in all of his life. Now as King Arthur came unto them, the three ceased tossing the ball, and she who was the fairest of all damoiselles demanded of him whither he went and upon what errand he was bound. Then King Arthur made reply, Ha, fair lady, whither should a belted knight ride upon such a day as this, and upon what business, other than the search of adventure such as beseemeth a knight of a proper strength of heart and frame, who would be errant? Then the three damoiselles smiled upon the king, for he was exceedingly comely of face, and they liked him very well. Alas, sir knight, said she who had before spoken, I prithee be in no such haste to undertake a dangerous adventure, but rather tarry with us for a day or two, or three, for to feast and make merry with us. For surely good cheer doth greatly enlarge the heart, and we would fain enjoy the company of so gallant a knight as thou appearest to be. Yonder castle is ours, and all this gay valley is ours, and those who have visited it are pleased, because of its joyousness, to call it the Valley of Delight. So tarry with us for a little, and be not in such haste to go forward. Nay, said King Arthur, I may not tarry with ye, fair ladies, for I am bent upon an adventure of which ye may want right well, when I tell you that I seek the sable knight, who hath overcome so many other knights, and hath taken away their shields. So I do pray ye of your grace, for to tell me where I may find him. "'Grace of heaven!' cried she who spake for the others. "'This is certainly a sorry adventure which ye seek, sir knight. "'For already, in these two days, "'have two knights assayed with that knight, "'and both have fallen into great pain and disregard. "'Nevertheless, and thou wilt undertake this peril, "'yet shalt thou not go until thou hast eaten and refreshed thyself.' "'So saying, she lifted a little ivory whistle "'that hung from her neck by a chain of gold.' "'and blew upon it very shrilly. "'In answer to this summons "'there came forth from the castle three fair young pages, "'clad all in flame-coloured raiment, "'bearing among them a silver table "'covered with a white napkin. "'And after them came five other pages "'of the same appearance, "'bearing flagons of white wine "'and red dried fruits "'and comfits and manchets of white fair bread. "'Then King Arthur descended from his war-horse "'with great gladness, "'for he was both hungry and a thirst, and, 
seated himself at the table with the damsels beside him. He ate with great enjoyment, discoursing pleasantly the while with those fair ladies, who listened to him with great cheerfulness of spirit. Yet he told them not who he was, though they greatly marveled who might be the noble warrior who had come thus into that place. So, having satisfied his hunger and his thirst, King Arthur mounted his steed again, and the three damsels conducted him across the valley a little way, he riding upon his horse, and they walking beside him. So, by and by, he perceived there was a dark pathway that led into the farther side of the forest land, and when he had come thither, the lady who had addressed him before said unto him, Yonder is the way that thou must take, and thou wouldst enter upon this adventure. So fare thee well, and may good hap go with thee. Thou art the knight most pleasant of address who hath come hitherward for this long time. Thereupon King Arthur, having saluted those ladies right courteously, rode away with very great joy of that pleasant adventure through which he had thus passed. Now when King Arthur had gone some ways he came, by and by, to a certain place where charcoal burners plied their trade. For here were many mounds of earth, all the smoke with the smoldering logs within, whilst all the air was filled with the smell of the dampened fires. As the king approached this spot, he presently beheld that something was toward that was sadly amiss. For, in the open clearing, he beheld three sooty fellows with long knives in their hands, who pursued one old man, whose beard was as white as snow. And he beheld that the reverend old man, who was clad richly in black, and whose horse stood at a little distance, was running hither and thither, as though to escape from those wicked men. And he appeared to be very hard-pressed, and in great danger of his life. "'Pardee,' quoth the young king to himself, "'here, cert, is one in sore need of succour.' Whereupon he cried out in a great voice, "'Hold, villains! What would you be at?' And therewith set spurs to his horse, and dropped his spear into rest, and drove down upon them with a noise like the thunder for loudness. But when the three wicked fellows beheld the armed knight thus thundering down upon them, they straightway dropped their knives, and, with loud outcries of fear, ran away hither and thither, until they had escaped into the thickets of the forest, where one upon a horse might not hope to pursue them. Whereupon, having driven away those wicked fellows, King Arthur rode up to him whom he had secured, thinking to offer him condolence. And behold, when he had come nigh to him, he perceived that the old man was the enchanter Merlin. Yet once he had so suddenly come, who had only a little while before been at the king's court at Corleone, and what he did in that place the king could in no wise understand. Wherefore he bespoke the enchanter in this wise. Ha, Merlin, it seemeth to me that I have saved thy life, for surely thou hast not escaped from the hands of those wicked men had I not happened to come hitherward at this time. Dost thou think so, Lord? said Merlin. Now let me tell thee that I did maybe appear to be in danger, yet I might have saved myself very easily had I been of a mind to do so. But as thou sawest me in this seeming peril, so may thou know that a real peril, far greater than this, lieth before thee, and there will be no errant knight to secure thee from it. Wherefore I pray thee, Lord, for to take me with thee upon this adventure that thou art set upon, for I do tell thee that thou shalt certainly suffer great dole and pain therein. Merlin, said King Arthur, even an I were to face my death, yet would I not turn back from this adventure. But touching the advice thou givest me, Meseems it would be very well to take thee with me, if such peril lieth before me, as thou sayest. And Merlin said, Yes, it would be very well for thee to do so. So Merlin mounted upon his palfrey, and King Arthur and he betook their way from that place in pursuit of that adventure which the king had undertaken to perform. We'll return with the next chapter, The Battle with the Sable Knight, right after these sponsor messages. Hi everyone! The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers 
as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now, Chapter 2nd, How King Arthur Fought with the Sable Knight and how he was sorely wounded. So King Arthur and Merlin rode together through the forest for a considerable while, until they perceived that they must be approaching nigh to the place where dwelt the sable knight whom the king sought so diligently. For the forest, which had till then been altogether a wilderness, very deep and mossy, began to show an aspect more thin and open, as though a dwelling-place of mankind was close at hand. And, after a little, they beheld before them a violent stream of water that rushed through a dark and dismal glen. And likewise, they perceived that across this stream of water there was a bridge of stone, and that upon the other side of the bridge there was a smooth and level lawn of green grass, whereon night's contestants might joust very well. And beyond this lawn they beheld a tall and forbidding castle with smooth walls and a straight tower, and this castle was built upon the rocks, so that it appeared to be altogether a part of the stone. So they wist that this must be the castle, whereof the page and Sir Grifflet had spoken. For, midway upon the bridge, they beheld that there hung a sable shield and a brass maul, exactly as the page and Sir Grifflet had said, and that upon the farther side of the stream was an apple tree, amid the leaves of which hung a very great many shields of various devices, exactly as those two had reported. And they beheld that some of those shields were clean and fair, and that some were foul and stained with blood, and that some were smooth and unbroken, and that some were cleft as though by battle of night with night. And all those shields were the shields of different knights whom the sable knight, who dwelt within the castle, had overthrown in combat with his own hand." "'Splendor of paradise,' quoth King Arthur. "'That must, indeed, be a right valiant knight "'who, with his own single strength, "'hath overthrown and cast down so many other knights. "'For indeed, Merlin, "'there must be a hundred shields hanging in yonder tree.' "'Unto this Merlin made reply, "'And thou, Lord, mayst be very happy, "'and thy shield, too, hangeth not there, "'ere the sun goeth down this eventide.' That, said King Arthur, with a very steadfast countenance, shall be as God willeth. For cert, I have a greater mind than ever for to try my power against yonder knight. For consider, what a special honor would fall to me should I overcome so valiant a warrior as this same sable champion appeareth to be, seeing that he hath been victorious over so many other good knights. Thereupon, having so spoken his mind, King Arthur immediately pushed forward his horse, and so, coming upon the bridge, he clearly read that challenge writ in letters of red beneath the shield. Who smiteth the shield, doeth so at his peril. Upon reading these words, the king seized the brazen maul, and smote that shield so violent a blow that the sound thereof echoed back from the smooth walls of the castle, and from the rocks whereon it stood, and from the skirts of the forest around about, as though twelve other shields had been struck in those several places. And in answer to that sound, the portcullis of the castle was immediately let fall, and there issued forth a knight, very huge of frame, and clad all in sable armor, and, likewise, all of his apparel and all the trappings of his horse were entirely of sable, so that he presented a most grim and forbidding aspect. And this sable knight came across that level meadow of smooth grass with a very stately and honorable gait, for neither did he ride in haste, nor did he ride slowly, but with great pride and haughtiness of mien, as became a champion who, haply, 
had never yet been overcome in battle. So, reaching the bridgehead, he drew rein and saluted King Arthur with great dignity, and also right haughtily. Ha! Sir Knight! quoth he. Why didst thou, having read those words yonder inscribed, smite upon my shield? Now I do tell thee that, for thy discourtesy, I shall presently take thy shield away from thee, and shall hang it up upon yonder apple tree, where thou beholdest all those other shields to be hanging. Wherefore, either deliver thou thy shield unto me without more ado, or else prepare for to defend it with thy person, in the which event thou shalt certainly suffer great pain and discomfort to thy body. Gramercy for the choice thou grantest me, said King Arthur, but as for taking away my shield, I do believe that that shall be as heaven willeth, and not as thou willest. Know, thou unkind knight, that I have come hither for no other purpose than to do battle with thee, and so to endeavor for to redeem with my person all those shields that hang yonder upon that apple tree. So make thou ready straightway, that I may have to do with thee, maybe to thy great disadvantage. That will I so, replied the sable knight. And thereupon he turned his horse's head, and, riding back a certain distance across the level lawn, he took stand in such place as appeared to him to be convenient. And so did King Arthur ride forth also upon that lawn, and take his station as seemed to him to be convenient. Then each knight dressed his spear and his shield for the encounter, and, having thus made ready for the assault, each shouted to his war-horse and drave his spears deep into its flank. Then those two noble steeds rushed forth like lightning, coursing across the ground with such violent speed that the earth trembled and shook beneath them, and it were by cause of an earthquake. So those two knights met fairly in the midst of the center of the field, crashing together like a thunderbolt. And so violently did they smite the one against the other that the spears burst into splinters, even unto the guard and the truncheon thereof. And the horses of the riders staggered back from the onset, so that only because of the extraordinary address of the knight's rider did they recover from falling before that shock of meeting. But with great spirit, these two knights uplifted each his horse with his own spirit, and so completed his course in safety. And indeed King Arthur was very much amazed that he had not overthrown his opponent, for at that time, as aforesaid, he was considered to be the very best knight, and the one best approved in deeds of arms that lived in all of Britain. Wherefore he marveled at the power and the address of that knight against whom he had driven, that he had not been overthrown by the greatness of the blow that had been delivered against his defences. So, when they met again in the midst of the field, King Arthur gave that knight greeting, and bespoke him with great courtesy, addressing him in this wise. Sir knight, I know not who thou art, but I do pledge my knightly word that thou art the most potent knight that I have ever met in all my life. Now I do bid thee get down straightway from thy horse, and let us two fight this battle with sword and upon foot, for it were pity to let it end in this way. Not so, quoth the sable knight, not so, nor until one of us twain be overthrown will I so contest this battle upon foot. And upon this he shouted, Ho, ho, in a very loud voice, and straightway thereupon the gateway of the castle opened, and there came running forth two tall esquires clad all in black, pied with crimson, and each of these esquires bare in his hand a great spear of ashwood, new and well-seasoned, and never yet strained in battle. So King Arthur chose one of these spears, and the sable knight took the other, and thereupon each returned to that station wherefrom he had before essayed the encounter. Then once again each knight rushed his steed to the assault, and once again did each smite so fairly in the midst of the defense of the other that the spears were splintered, so that only the guard and the truncheon thereof remained in the grasp of the knight who held it. Then, as before, King Arthur would have fought the battle out with swords and upon foot. But again the sable knight would not have it so, but called aloud upon those within the castle, whereupon there immediately came forth two other esquires with fresh new spears of ashwood. So each knight again took him a spear, and having armed himself therewith, chose each his station upon that fair, level lawn of grass. And now, for the third time, 
having thus prepared themselves there of assault, those two excellent knights hurled themselves together in furious assault. And now, as twice before, did King Arthur strike the sable knight so fairly in the center of his defense that the spear which he held was burst into splinters. But this time, the spear of the sable knight did not so break in that manner, but held. And so violent was the blow that he delivered upon King Arthur's shield that he pierced through the center of it. Then the girths of the king's saddle burst apart by that great powerful blow, and both he and his steed were cast violently backward. So King Arthur might have been overcast had he not voided his saddle with extraordinary skill and knightly address, wherefore, though his horse was overthrown, he himself still held his footing and did not fall into the dust. Nevertheless, so violent was the blow that he received that, for a little space, he was altogether bereft of his senses, so that everything whirled around before his eyes. But when his sight returned to him, he was filled with an anger so vehement that it appeared to him as though all the blood in his heart rushed into his brains, so that he saw naught but red, as of blood, before his eyes. And when this also had passed, he perceived the sable knight, that he sat his horse at no great distance. Then immediately King Arthur ran to him, and catching the bridle rein of his horse, he cried out aloud unto that sable knight with great violence, Come down, thou black knight, and fight me upon foot, and with thy sword. That I will not do, said the sable knight, for lo, I have overthrown thee. Wherefore deliver thou to me thy shield, that I may hang it upon yonder apple tree, and go thy way, as others have done before thee. That I will not, cried King Arthur, with exceeding passion. Neither will I yield myself, nor go hence until either thou or I have altogether conquered the other. Thereupon he thrust the horse of the sable knight backward by the bridle rein so vehemently that the other was constrained to void his saddle to save himself from being overthrown upon the ground. And now each knight was as entirely furious as the other, wherefore each drew his sword and dressed his shield, and thereupon rushed together like two wild bulls in battle. They joined, they smote, they traced, they parried, they struck again, and again, and the sound of their blows, crashing and clashing the one upon the other, filled the entire surrounding space with an extraordinary uproar. Nor may any man altogether conceive of the entire fury of that encounter, for, because of the violence of the blows which the one delivered upon the other, whole cantles of armor were hewn from their bodies, and many deep and grievous wounds were given and received, so that the armor of each was altogether stained with red because of the blood that flowed down upon it. At last King Arthur, waxing, as it were, entirely mad, struck so fierce a blow that no armor could have withstood that stroke had it fallen fairly upon it. But it befell with that stroke that his sword broke at the hilt, and the blade thereof flew into three several pieces in the air. Yet was the stroke so wonderfully fierce that the sable knight groaned, and staggered, and ran about in a circle as though he had gone blind, and knew not whither to direct his steps. But presently he recovered himself again, and perceiving King Arthur standing nearby, and not knowing that his enemy had now no sword for to defend himself withal, he cast aside his shield, and took his own sword into both hands, and therewith smote so dolorous a stroke that he claved through King Arthur's shield, and through his helmet, and even to the bone of his brain-pan. Then King Arthur thought that he had received his death wound, for his brain swam like water, his thighs trembled exceedingly, and he sank down to his knees, whilst the blood and sweat, commingled together in the darkness of his helmet, flowed down into his eyes in a lather and blinded him. Thereupon, seeing him thus grievously hurt, the sable knight called upon him with great vehemence for to yield himself and to surrender his shield, because he was now too sorely wounded for to fight any more. But King Arthur would not yield himself, but catching the other by the sword-belt, he lifted himself to his feet. Then, being in a manner recovered from his amazement, he embraced the other with both arms, and placing his knee behind the thigh of the sable knight, he cast him backward down upon the ground so violently that the sound of the fall was astounding to hear. And with that fall the sable knight was, a while, entirely bereft of consciousness. Then King Arthur straightway unlaced the helm of the sable knight, 
and so beheld his face, and he knew him in spite of the blood that still ran down his own countenance in great quantities, and he knew that knight was King Pellinore, aforenamed in this history, who had twice warred against King Arthur. It hath already been said how King Arthur had driven that other king from the habitations of men and into the forest, so that now he dwelt in this poor gloomy castle, whence he waged war against all the knights who had come unto that place. Now when King Arthur beheld whom it was against whom he had done battle, he cried out aloud, Ha! Pellinore, is it then thou? Now yield thee to me, for thou art entirely at my mercy. And upon this he drew his misericordia, and set the point thereof at King Pellinore's throat. But by now King Pellinore had greatly recovered from his fall, and perceiving that the blood was flowing down in great measure from his enemy's helmet, he wished that that other must have been very sorely wounded by the blow which he had just now received. Wherefore he catched King Arthur's wrist in his hand, and directed the point of the dagger away from his own throat, so that no great danger threatened therefrom. And indeed, what with his sore wound, and with the loss of blood, King Arthur was now fallen exceedingly sick and faint, so that it appeared to him that he was nigh to death. Accordingly, it was with no very great ado that King Pellinore suddenly heaved himself up from the ground, and so overthrew his enemy, that King Arthur was now underneath his knees. And by this King Pellinore was exceedingly mad with the fury of the sore battle he had fought. For he was so enraged that his eyes were all beshot with blood like those of a wild boar, and a froth like the champions of a wild boar stood in the beard about his lips. Wherefore he wrenched the dagger out of his enemy's hand, and immediately began to unlace his helm, with intent to slay him where he lay. But at this moment Merlin came in great haste, crying out, Stay! Stay, Sir Pellinore! What would you be at? Stay your sacrilegious hand! For he who lieth beneath you is none other than Arthur, king of all this realm. At this King Pellinore was astonished beyond measure, and for a little while he was silent, and then after a while he cried out in a very loud voice, "'Say you so, old man! "'Then verily your words have doomed this man unto death! "'For no one in all this world hath ever suffered such ill and such wrongs "'as I have suffered at his hands! "'For, lo, he hath taken from me power and kingship and honors and estates, "'and hath left me only this gloomy, dismal castle of the forest "'as an abiding place. "'Wherefore, seeing that he is thus in my power, "'he shall now presently die.' if for no other reason than because if I now let him go free, he will certainly revenge himself when he shall have recovered from all of the ill he has suffered at my hands. Then Merlin said, Not so. He shall not die at thy hands, for I myself shall save him. Whereupon he uplifted his staff and smote King Pellinore across his shoulders. Then immediately King Pellinore fell down and lay upon the ground on his face like one who had suddenly gone dead. Upon this, King Arthur uplifted himself upon his elbow, and beheld his enemy lying there as though dead. And he cried out, Merlin, what is this that thou hast done? I am very sorry, for I do perceive that thou, by thy arts of magic, hast slain one of the best knights in all the world. Not so, my lord king, said Merlin, for in sooth I tell thee that thou art far nigher to thy death than he. For he is but in sleep, and will soon awaken. "'but thou art in such a case "'that it would take only a very little "'for to cause thee to die. "'And indeed King Arthur was exceedingly sick, "'even to the heart, "'with the sore wound he had received, "'so that it was only with much ado "'that Merlin could help him up upon his horse. "'Having done the witch "'and having hung the king's shield "'upon the horn of his saddle, "'Merlin straightway conveyed the wounded man "'thence across the bridge, "'and leading the horse by the bridle, "'so took him away into the forest.' Now I must tell you that there was in that part of the forest a certain hermit so holy that the wild birds of the woodland would come and rest upon his hand whilst he read his breviary. And so sanctified was he in gentleness that the wild does would come even to the door of his hermitage and there stand while he milked them for his refreshment. And this hermit dwelt in that part of the forest so remote from the habitations of man that when he rang the bell for matins or for vespers there was hardly ever anyone to hear the sound thereof "'excepting the wild creatures that dwelt thereabout. "'Yet, nevertheless, to this remote and lonely place "'royal folk and others of high degree would sometimes come, "'as though on a pilgrimage, 
because of the hermit's exceeding saintliness. So Merlin conveyed King Arthur into this sanctuary, and having reached that place, he and the hermit lifted the wounded man down from his saddle, the hermit giving many words of pity and sorrow, and together they conveyed him into the holy man's cell. There they laid him upon a couch of moss, and unlaced his armor, and searched his wounds, and bathed them with pure water, and dressed his hurts, for that hermit was a very skillful leech. So for all that day and part of the next, King Arthur lay upon the hermit's pallet like one about to die, for he beheld all things about him as though through thin water, and the breath hung upon his lips and fluttered, and he could not even lift his head from the pallet because of the weakness that lay upon him. Now upon the afternoon of the second day there fell a great noise and tumult in that part of the forest, for it happened that Lady Guinevere of Camelard, together with her court, both of ladies and of knights, had come upon a pilgrimage to that holy man, the fame of whose saintliness had reached even unto the place where she dwelt. For that lady had a favorite page who was very sick of a fever, and she trusted that the holy man might give her some charm or amulet by the virtue of which he might haply be cured. Wherefore she had come to that place with her entire court, so that all that part of the forest was made gay with fine raiment, and the silence thereof was made merry with the sound of talk and laughter and the singing of songs and the chattering of many voices and the neighing of horses. And the Lady Guinevere rode in the midst of her damsels and her court, and her beauty outshone the beauty of her damsels, as the splendor of the morning star outshines that of all the lesser stars that surround it. For then and afterward she was held by all the courts of chivalry to be the most beautiful lady in the world. Now when Lady Guinevere had come to that place, she perceived the milk-white war-horse of King Arthur, where it stood cropping the green grass of the open glade nigh to the hermitage. And likewise she perceived Merlin, where he stood beside the door of the cell. So of him she demanded, Whose was that noble war-horse that stood browsing upon the grass at that lonely place? And who was it that lay within that cell? And unto her Merlin made answer, Lady, he who lieth within is a knight, very sorely wounded, so that he is sick nigh unto death. Pity of heaven, cried the Lady Guinevere, what a sad thing is this that thou tellest me! Now I do beseech thee to lead me presently unto that knight that I may behold him. For I have in my court a very skilful leech, who is well used to the cure of hurts, such as knights receive in battle. So Merlin brought the lady into the zell, and there she beheld King Arthur, where he lay stretched upon the pallet. And she wist not who he was. Yet it appeared to her that in all her life she had not beheld so noble appearing a knight as he who lay sorely wounded in that lonely place. And King Arthur cast his looks upward to where she stood beside his bed of pain, surrounded by her maidens, and in the great weakness that lay upon him, he wist not whether she whom he beheld was a mortal lady, or whether she was not rather some tall, straight angel who had descended from one of the lordly courts of paradise for to visit him in his pain and distresses. And the Lady Guinevere was filled with a great pity at beholding King Arthur's sorrowful estate. Wherefore she called to her that skilful leech who was with her court, and she bade him bring a certain alabaster box of exceedingly precious balsam. And she commanded him for to search that knight's wounds, and to anoint them with the balsam, so that he might be healed of his hurts with all despatch. So that wise and skilful leech did according to the Lady Guinevere's commands, and immediately King Arthur felt entire ease of all his aches and great content of spirit. And when the lady and her court had departed, he found himself much uplifted in heart, and three days thereafter he was entirely healed, and was as well and strong and lusty as ever he had been in all of his life. And this was the first time that King Arthur ever beheld that beautiful lady, the Lady Guinevere of Camelard, and from that time forth he never forgot her but she was almost always present in his thoughts. Wherefore, when he was recovered, he said thus to himself, I will forget that I am a king, and I will cherish the thought of this lady, and will serve her faithfully as a good knight may serve his chosen dame. And so he did, as ye shall hear later in this book. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales for the Book of King Arthur and His Knights. This is actually part two of his story, The Winning of the Sword. If you enjoy our stories here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please don't hesitate to send us a review or a comment at Apple Podcast or comments 
at Spotify. We thank all of you for listening, whatever host you're using, and we're glad to have you with us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon with more of the Book of King Arthur. Hope you enjoyed it. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply